0: I'm Carl Safina. I'm an ecologist and an author. And my vision of the world is of a beautiful living planet where every living thing has the room it's supposed to have. And um, all the populations of uh, all the living things that are here with us now, which come from more than a billion years of evolution. Everything that's alive now is the survivor of an unbroken chain that stretches back a billion years um, has enough room and viability to continue on into the future like it's supposed to and people human beings can live in dignity and peace
1: Hi, I'm Mark Lauren young Thanks for joining me for Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Carl Safina is an ecologist, author, and icon. He's one of the world's essential voices on animal culture and animal rights. He's also a wonderful storyteller. He's been on my wish list as a guest for this show since we launched, and when he released his book, becoming wild, how animal cultures raise families, create beauty, and achieve peace. I had to talk to him about sperm whale culture. As always, Scanna is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're up to, please help us share more stories in 2021 by joining our pod and sponsoring us at patreon.com. You can also visit our site, scanna.org, where you can make one-time donations via Ko-fi. please subscribe, or you can help us out by buying my books about orcas. Find out more about my whale books and ebooks and audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com. You can also buy my books that aren't about orcas. That's fine too. They are all for sale wherever you buy books. We're also doing a new podcast, Orca Bites, where we feature shorter bite-sized pieces about orcas, oceans, ecoethics, and the environment from guests like Wade Davis, David Suzuki, Alexandra Morton, Joel Bacon and Carl Safina. And now, here's Carl Safina on Animal Culture, Sperm Whale Society, and Cetacean Communication. So, how are you and where are you?
0: I'm on Long Island New York. I'm very well right now we uh, we're doing okay here despite the pandemic. All of our travels for the year of course have been canceled and we're doing lots of things remotely and uh, virtually but we're okay with that right now. we've managed to stay healthy and um, we uh, we're managing to work you know if, if you write, Staying home is not necessarily a bad thing. Luckily, I was at the end of a book project that required a lot of traveling, but I had already done all the traveling and and in fact, all the writing when everything started to close down. And um, oddly enough, uh, ironically, being home allowed me to spend a lot more time observing an orphan screech owl that we had raised that was living around our house, decided to stick around much to my great surprise and acquired a wild mate and raised three young right in our backyard. And that is the subject of the book that I'm writing now. So after writing a book that required traveling to three continents, I'm writing a book that required staying home.
1: Wow, the screech owl sounds amazing.
0: It is amazing, yeah. Yeah, really lovely, really wonderful little thing. A little bit of magic around the yard. Yeah. Did you, have you given the owl a name? Her name is Alfie, which is short for Alfalfa because she's a little rascal.
1: Nice. So uh, when I found out that you were game to be interviewed, I reached out to Lori Marino, who's been a huge help with a lot Uh of my stuff. And one of my, one of my kind of eco heroes and she said, "Carl is one of those rare conservationists who actually understands that these are all individuals with minds
0: um well that there's a lot of truth to that. I think there are I think there are more and more people i mean i i think uh, I think a lot of people who study free living animals understand that they make decisions that they um they have at least short-term plans. They have emotions. Um, all of these things are, are very basic and very old things. There's no reason to believe that they suddenly all appeared in humans and have no history. That would make no sense. That would be, that would be like thinking that our skeletons came from nowhere and our organs came from nowhere. Um, well, our, our mind and our emotion comes from somewhere also. And you can see it in quite a few other animals. Um, So the, you know, these to me are very obvious things. I think to many people, they're very obvious things, but I think people are very confused about them. You know, we, there are a lot of people who would say, well, I don't even know if other animals feel pain. And yet we test cosmetics on the eyes of rabbits, because if they sting the rabbits, they're going to sting us. So uh, you know, as I say, we 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 seem to have a lot of a lot of confused thinking and confused feelings about this. And um, one of the reasons that I think we're confused about the obvious is that the obvious gets in the way of um, our favorite story, which is we are completely unique. There's nothing like us, and we're the only things that matter. And going along with being the only things that matter is that we can do anything we want to, any other living thing without worrying too much about it and if we do recognize that they can have experiences can can experience something ranging from a sense of well-being to a sense of misery then it makes a lot of the way the the human species conducts its its uh life and time here makes that rather inconvenient if you actually stop to worry about the implications of uh, everything we do.
1: Now, thanks for that. Uh, I'd wanted to talk to you forever, and then I read Becoming Wild, like then Becoming Wild came out,
0: and I- And, and then you didn't want to talk to me anymore? I oh,
1: no, then I had then I had <laughs> to talk to you, but I had to talk about sperm whales. Oh, okay. Could you please tell I've, I've done so much work around orcas and to uh-huh. read about sperm whales like that was just a joy. Uh-huh. Can you please talk about how you decided to dive into the world of sperm whales?
0: Well, the book Becoming Wild is about cultures in other animals. And there is a, um, there are a lot of other animals that have culture. What is culture? Before we can even talk about, you know, having culture, I have to understand what we mean by that. Culture is the behaviors and the traditions and the habits and the practices and even the attractions that flow socially. They they don't come purely instinctively. You learn them from a social group. So there, um, there's a subset of other animals that have that kind of culture that live in social groups where what you learn socially is extremely important to how you live. And, um, of that, Subset. There's a smaller subset that are well studied, and sperm whales are one of the ones that have culture. It's well studied, and it's also a very amazing. It has the uh, it has the the the, um, the very fortunate side aspect of the fact that it's quite amazing. So sperm whales live in social groups that are a lot like African elephants. They live in female-led families. The the females stay with their family of their birth. Uh, In other words, they stay with their mother until the mother passes on. Uh, Then they they stay with their sisters. Eventually, you know, if they live long enough, they will be the oldest individual, the oldest mother in that group. And the males stay until about adolescence, and then they leave. They have a different kind of a social life. Sperm whales live in a layered society where families belong to clans and clans, uh, all the families within a clan can socialize and will socialize, but they will avoid other clans. They won't socialize with families of other clans. They, um, Unlike the orcas that you're very familiar with, which make a lot of different kinds of sounds in addition to sonar clicks, sperm whales only seem to make clicks. They use some of them for sonar, and then they use others, kind of like a very simple Morse code for identification. And through the identification clicks, other whales can tell, well, they announce, basically, uh, here I am, this particular individual. I'm a member of this particular family, and we are a member of this particular clan. That's pretty surprising. And it took people a lot of years to figure that out. And um, there are only two animals in the world who are currently known to be able to tell when meeting a complete stranger, somebody they've never seen before, um, whether that stranger is part of a group that they belong to or not. And those two animals are sperm whales and human beings, so that's another really amazing aspect of um, how sperm whales conduct their lives and their and their cultural, um, you know, what they learn culturally.
1: Wow! Can you please just explain that a little further because that's fascinating.
0: Well, if you meet a complete stranger, um, well, you, human culture has a lot of a lot of cultural groups within cultural groups, so. Let's say you meet a total stranger and they don't speak your language. Well, right away you know they're not part of a group that you belong to, um, or at least, at least you know the main group you belong to, your your language group. Uh, they may be wearing a Red Sox hat, and you may be a, a Cubs fan. You'll you'll know that they're not a group that you belong to. They may be wearing a religious insignia that that signifies that they are from the group you're in, or or a different religion, and the main thing that culture seems to do—well, culture answers the question, "How do we live here?" That's the main thing that culture does. It it lets it lets individuals understand how they live in their group. So, if you're um, if you're you know a member of any of the cultural groups I mentioned—a uh, religious group, a language group. Uh, you know, even f- fans of a certain kind of uh, sport or art form, you understand how you do things, and you know that the others in that group will understand you. And that allows you to cooperate and be together. If if you do things very differently, you won't be able to cooperate. If you um, If you don't speak the same language, or if you go into a religious group that's not your own, you won't understand the service that you suddenly are in. So, uh, with other animals, it's things like what do we eat, where do we eat it, how do we find food, what what food, um, what it requires to eat food, where where is the water, where are the predators, what's dangerous, how do we meet and greet subordinate or dominant individuals, how do we show. Uh, proper respect or assert dominance. What what do we do? That's what uh, they that's what they learn. Some of them have dialects, different different ways of using their calls, and they learn that as well. Or they learn a very very simple vocabulary of a few a few nouns or a few very short phrases that alert to particular kinds of predators, whether it's a predator in the air or a predator on the ground. And those kinds of things. And because it answers the question of how do we live here, it it makes individuals, culture makes individuals come together in cultural groups. And then it makes cultural groups avoid each other or become hostile to each other, just sort of instinctively hostile to one another. They don't do things the way you do it and it makes you uncomfortable and so you want to avoid or in some cases repel them. Uh, you, you do a lot with orcas, so you know orcas are among the most cultural of all non-humans. and the cultural implications of orcas are that the, the mammal eaters and the fish eaters and the shark eaters avoid each other completely. They, they don't um, They don't ever mingle. They don't ever socialize and the long term effects of that is that it allows them to specialize in how they do things. If you hunt fish, you hunt fish very differently than if you hunt mammals. With fish, you want to be in a big, noisy group and scare all the fish together. With mammals, you have to be in a very small, very quiet group because mammals could hear you coming and then they could flee. They don't you know, live in big schools. So um, humans, unfortunately, uh, we, we think of culture as things like you know, the arts or fashion or music, and, and we think of the uh, the product of culture without ever asking what is culture and why do humans have the capacity for culture and what are the implications of that? And and one of the big implications of that is, as I'm saying, it makes individuals come together into cultural groups, but then it makes cultural groups avoid or repel each other. and And this sort of instinctive, very basic, very um, animal thing that, that is the reason we have culture is the basis of most of the cultural problems that we have now and why people can't simply accept other cultures, live and let live, get along together, ignore people that um, don't th- do things your way, why it is that we have these constant problems constantly causing friction, frequently turning violent, that we learn generation after generation to perpetuate um, and that learning is cultural. As the song says, you have to be taught to hate and fear. But once you're taught who is in your group, it's unfortunately kind of instinctive to mistrust and feel hostile to those that are outside your group.
1: Sorry, and how do sperm whale cultures interact?
0: Well, as I say, they, you know, they identify what clan they're in and if, if uh, other families are in the same clan, they will mix and mingle and socialize. And if they're not in the same clan, they will turn away from each other and not mix. Can you talk a little bit, about, you just raised dialects and I'm always fascinated
1: by the distinction between dialects and languages. And do you feel sperm whales have a language with their codas with their clicks?
0: Well, um, with all of these things, it's very important to first define what you mean by that word, because words are labels we slap on different concepts. and some some words mean very different things. You know, they have a variety of meanings. So language is usually a system of communication that has grammar and syntax. It, it, there, you know, different things are different parts of speech, and the positioning of words can change their meaning in a sentence. There doesn't seem to be language, which humans have language clearly. There doesn't seem to be language among other uh, other animals, but um, I would say that we don't understand a lot about the communication systems of. Dolphins. Dolphins includes, um, you know, orcas and all of the things we think of as dolphins. They seem to be able to get some very detailed information across to one another in ways we don't understand. And um, there might be a modality we haven't detected yet, just like we didn't know about sonar until about the 1960s or at least the 50s. Um, however, even even though I would say we don't seem to see language, or we see only the incredibly simplest language with with a vocabulary of maybe 10 words in some other animals, like some monkeys. Um, There is a tremendous amount of communication in the non-human world. And that communication extends very, very far down. Now, communication means you have a sender and a receiver The the sender is sending information that the receiver receives appropriately and understands the content of the information. In order to communicate, you don't even have to be alive. Computers communicate all the time. Flowers are a plant's communication to pollinators that say, there's nectar over here, and in exchange for giving nectar, they they get pollinated. But that is communication. The, The flower, in a sense, has to tangle up the nervous system of an animal to, to get the job done. It it's, you know, it's a highly sophisticated thing, but, and it's, and it's communication, but I, I, w- I would say it's not language and it doesn't seem like sperm whales really have language. It seems like they have, um, some codes that mainly stand for identities, individual identity, family identity, and group identity. That's that's the way I understand it. That's the way it seems to me.
1: Can you explain the concept of codas because those sounded fascinating.
0: Codas are like little short Morse codes. They are a a, a pattern series of clicks, you know, a few fast ones, a few slow ones, spaces here and there. Um, but they're short and they don't they don't seem to say a lot. It's not like with Morse code, you know every every. Morse code signal stands for a letter in the alphabet, and then you you create sentences that way. The the whales seem to be able to say only, I'm this individual from this family in this clan. But it does get a lot more complicated because the clans don't just have one coda that says this is this clan. They have a lot of different codas and many clans use the same codas, but the the clan identity comes across in which codas are used most frequently. It's kind of mind-boggling. It, it's, it took me a long time, uh, a, well, a lot of explaining to me by the scientist that was studying this, Shane Garrow, before I kind of wrapped my mind around what he was saying. Where I was in the, in the Caribbean, it was a very simple system where if, if you heard a series of codas and there was one particular coda in there, That coda said, this clan. The other clan did not make that coda ever. But in the Pacific, it's more complicated than that. So that raises the possibility that it's a lot more information rich than we currently understand. What we currently understand is pretty simple. But there's a lot of other coda making that goes into it. And we don't understand, well, the scientists don't understand Exactly why and I, I would say in um, with orcas it's 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 kind of the same thing. They do a tremendous amount of vocalizing and we don't know what it is that they're using all of that sound making for, but it's it's very improbable that they would just be making a lot of different kinds of noises to no effect. I mean, why would a system like that, Happen? Why would it evolve? Why would they do it? Why would they spend any energy on a lot of noise that doesn't mean anything? It, it, you know, so therefore, it seems very likely that it means quite a bit, and we don't have any idea yet what it means.
1: I love that. I feel often dealing with scientists that they say that animals don't have a language to imply they don't communicate.
0: Well, when I say that they don't have a language, it doesn't mean at all that they don't communicate. There's a tremendous amount of communication done without what we would call a language.
1: Yeah, that's that's why I love that you got into that uh-huh. because I feel like that's used as one of the ways we go, well, we're so much smarter than animals because we have a language. I'm like, yeah, but they're communicating. Yeah. They're, right. They're they're sharing what they need to share.
0: They're sharing what they need to share, and they do seem well, especially orcas seem to be able to make some very sophisticated sorts of decisions. Um, you know, two of the things that most boggle my mind about dolphin communication, and again, dolphins are, are uh, or orcas are the biggest dolphins, is uh, the stories about when they were capturing them on the west coast, many of the families had been caught repeatedly, and they've had you know, their, their infants taken from them before they knew what was going on when the boats were starting to attack them. And they, they had, you know, the boats with the bombs trying to scare them, um, you know, the cherry bombs and uh, spotter planes and things like that. They understood what was going on. And in, uh, in at least one case uh, that is documented and described, uh, a group split and the, the males stayed at the surface and drew the, Uh, the pursuers, the human pursuers, into a cove, while the females with the young calves stayed underwater as much as possible and went around the other side of an island. Uh, You know, and which to them, if you're on the other side of an island, you're acoustically isolated. So that was the best that they could do to try to hide. The, um, The unfortunate thing for them, of course, was that being mammals, they had to come to the surface to breathe and they were eventually detected. But a plan that says, let's split up, all the males will go and decoy them over here and you take the babies over there to that safe place, that's a pretty mind boggling thing. Um, And if it really happened that way, as was observed and described, it means that they have a way of saying a lot to each other that we totally don't understand. With dolphins, um, I think even even much more unequivocally documented is that you can train dolphins to understand um, a a gesture command that says do something that we have never taught you to do and two dolphins who get that who are trained and who get that command at the same time will go underwater, swim around for a few moments, and then they will both come out and do exactly the same thing that they were never trained to do. And the scientists who have written about this said that they were totally flabbergasted and they have no idea how they did that. So I think that's where our understanding ends. They, they do something that requires detailed communication and we have no idea right now how they're doing it.
1: Those orcas that were being chased also avoided some of those coves and some of the places they were captured for generations.
0: They avoided them for for um, many, many years to come. Yeah. Oh, well, they, you know, they, they like very well understand where they amazing. are. What's that say? They're like mean? a
1: full generation. It's amazing. They pass that on.
0: Yeah, um, kind of similarly um, with wolves and ravens they quickly came to avoid carcasses that had been visited by humans because usually humans poisoned those carcasses. In the case of the wolves, um, once they were totally exterminated, wolves that were reintroduced, you know, did not have that culture anymore of only taking one meal, and if, and if there was any scent of humans around it, they would simply avoid and not finish a carcass that they had killed. But ravens will still avoid carcasses that humans visit, something that they learned when the carcasses were being poisoned, to poison wolves, and uh, something that they apparently still do now. If They see people go to a carcass, they won't go and visit it again.
1: Wow. What surprised you most when you were learning about sperm whales?
0: What surprised me most? Um, I guess I guess how mammalian they seem. You know, they do a lot of things that are just very recognizably mammalian. They meet and greet each other. They do a lot of rolling around. They like contact a lot. They, they have what looks like tiny little stubby flippers you know their their arms are are shortened into these little paddles and yet they extend them and they they well they you know they they sort of put them horizontally and they run them along the bodies of their family members which looks like a very affectionate kind of a thing do you have any thoughts about the
1: importance of cultural diversity in a species because i think that's something that most people really take for granted. It's like sperm whales or sperm whales, orcas or orcas, and it, it's a lot of work to get people past that. Yeah. And when you're talking about the clans, you're getting into cultural diversity, not just culture.
0: Well, if you didn't need diversity, you wouldn't. You you wouldn't. Well, I I was going to say you wouldn't need any culture, but I guess I guess I'll take that back. That's not really true. But because there are different ways of living in different places, or sometimes different ways in the same place, cultural diversity arises. It's, this is how our group does this. This is how our group does things. This is how we travel. This is how we hunt. This is where we go. Um, For for quite a lot of other animals, it's uh, some very practical things like this is our summer range. And uh, when it starts to cool down, this is where we go into the lowlands for the winter. And if you don't know those migration routes, you will die. There have been reintroduction attempts for things like bighorn sheep, where they put them in some very nice summer pasture up at 7,000 feet somewhere uh, because the local population was exterminated by human pressure. And then autumn comes and they don't know where to go. There's no one to follow. There's no culture of where you go in the winter. And so the mortality rates are vastly higher for several generations than they would normally be because animals are stuck in winter storms and starving. And normally that would not happen. There was a lovely concept in your book where you talked
1: about animals making a living. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Um, I'm not exactly sure in what context um that stuck out to you or or that i was referring to that but i mean animals animals do make a living they um what else do they do besides make a living the living doesn't just come to them unless you well you know unless you're a coral corals are animals and they they don't go anywhere and and their living in a sense just comes to them the food particles come to them but most most of the animals we're talking about are very mobile and they have to go and get their food so they are making a living
1: well the thing is not coming from a science background at all when i started interviewing people about orcas i didn't understand that anthropomorphism was considered a bad thing so to me making a living was just such a beautiful phrase in terms of getting across how animals live, like getting across the, the similarities as opposed to the differences. I feel like there's an effort to find differences that may not exist.
0: Uh, there is an effort to assert differences that don't exist, and the idea of you know this anthropomorphism, this this uh, awkward word, is the idea of attributing humans human thoughts and human emotions to non humans. Um, But what if they have similar thoughts and similar emotions? And if you look at their behavior, clearly they do. If you consider evolution, clearly they should. And if you look at their brains, um, their brains function extremely similarly. I mean, they have same firing patterns that humans have for different things like recognizing individuals that they know or um, sleep patterns and dreaming patterns and things like that. So a rule that says you can't attribute human thoughts and emotions to non-humans is not scientific. Science is supposed to look at evidence first and then believe what the evidence says. It's not supposed to tell you ahead of time what you're allowed to believe. It's not a scientific thing to say you, you are not allowed to anthropomorphize, you're not allowed to attribute human thoughts and emotions to other animals. Some other animals have thoughts and emotions that are quite similar to ours for, for reasons that are quite similar to why we have them and how we use them.
1: I'm just fascinated by the way people tie themselves up in knots to come up with words to avoid, you know, to come up with language, to avoid the idea that animals have the same thoughts and feelings, to avoid anything around that. and it.
0: Um, I just don't get it. I only get it because I understand, um, you know, some of the history of some of that kinds of training. I, I was trained like that too when I was a college student, not when I was in graduate school though. My graduate school advisor did not uh, feel or think or talk that way. And, um, you know, as I said, I, I don't think it's a scientific thing. I think, you um, You're supposed to be open to evidence and you're supposed to, you know, and the gathering principle of biology is is uh, the principle of organic evolution. We're we're all related. We get our brains and our nervous systems from where they came from and um, and they came from pretty far back. So um, Everything in in the living world is on a continuum. It's on a range there. There are Essentially, no categories really in the living world. Uh, everything is on a range. So, and that, and that includes mental capacity and, and emotional ability.
1: What was it like to see a sperm whale breach?
0: Very surprising. Um, I was not expecting them to haul their entire bodies out of the water. I, I've seen humpback whales do that many, many, many times. But they're they're so known for that, and um, uh, you know sperm whales. I mean, they have this gigantic head that's about a third of the length of their body. They they look incredibly bulky, and they 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 look very very heavy, uh, which I know is a funny thing to say about a whale. But um, I wasn't expecting them to go aerial at all. There are a lot of whales I know that do not go aerial. Or, or almost never do. Um, where I live, there are a lot of minke whales and there are a um, fair number of fin whales and they don't you know, come launching out of the water. And I, I wasn't expecting sperm whales to come launching out of the water, but they do, and it's uh, pretty spectacular. Yeah,
1: you got into the brutal way that whales are named. What are your least favorite whale names?
0: Uh, sperm whale is my least favorite whale name. Um, and, uh, you know, right, right whale is the most brutal name because it's, it, it meant that they were the right whale to kill, you know, uh, and as I said in the book, you know, it would be nice if there was a whale that was named the let it be whale instead of the right whale to kill. But that's pretty grim reminder. Um, and not, not a good name for a species. It's just a name that whalers gave them scientists are always giving animals new names. They're lumping and splitting. They, they, you know, scientists give them all the Latin names and they frequently change Latin names as we presumably learn better about their relationships to one another. And uh, I think some of those whale names should really just be deep-sixed for old times.
1: Oh, that would be fantastic. I just read a baby book uh, about where I mentioned whales. And, like. Nope, can't mention sperm whales because I don't really want to explain what sperm is to babies.
0: Well, um, that's just know, a name. It's I mean, I, I, I grew up knowing that name, not, not understanding you know, at all what the idea behind that was. The, uh, the, the absurd idea behind it was that the oil in their head, the consistency of the oil in their head reminded the semen of semen. Even though it was very clear that they had a lot of females on their hands there, but um, uh, it's a very dopey name. There are uh, in other languages the name for sperm whale catch a lot or cachola refers to their head. It's basically big headed whale. That would be um, that would be a start anyway.
1: Big headed whale would work. Yeah, sperm whales, right whales, and false killers I think are probably my least
0: yeah false anything is uh is very unfortunate right
1: hi we made a mistake so that's now our scientific name really Mm -hmm. that's as good as you've got
0: yeah and that's for a real animal you know that animal is as real uh, as genuine as authentic as original um as much of the family as any other whale and to name it false something is sort of uh, a name that denies it of its existence in a way it's really uh, it's very it's very poor nomenclature. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? I remember the first time I saw a whale. Yes, it was on it was on the beach at uh, Point Reyes in California. It was uh, just outside the surf, and it appears it appeared to be. I didn't I didn't know much about whales at the time, but um, looking it up, and in retrospect, it appeared to be a fin whale that was right off the beach there. It would be much more likely if it was a gray whale, but um, it it m- my thought at the time was that it was a fin whale.
1: Did it make any kind of impression any kind of impression or any kind of cool memory of that?
0: Oh, well, of course it made a huge impression. It was very thrilling, yeah. Very thrilling. I had never seen a whale. I wasn't sure I would ever see a whale.
1: And when was that?
0: That was in 19 19- 77, okay. that whale might be alive.
1: Yeah. I gather, I, I read about you visiting Ken Balcom last year. Can you talk a little bit about that, about visiting Ken and the Center for Whale Research and all he does?
0: Yeah, well, Ken is an amazing guy. He, he's been studying uh, orcas or killer whales for, um, uh, for 40 years. And, he has an incredible ear he you know there there are hydrophones in the water and you can stream the hydrophones into your uh computer so he has some speakers set up in his house and they're always listening and you just hear some very 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 distant squealing at first um the the way it seemed to me was like uh you know a dixieland band just turned the corner far down the block and you just start hearing the sound and then it gets louder and louder and louder but uh, to me it was a total cacophony of squeals and whistles and ken would just listen for a couple of seconds they say that's that's the l pod and the k pod and i would just say how do you know and he would say well you hear you hear that that some of those squeals are a little more purry sounding and I would say, no, I, I don't hear that at all. But his, his ears are tuned um, really amazingly.
1: What made you decide to- and also,
0: and also visually, he can glance at pretty much any of those Southern resident whales and just tell you exactly which individuals you're looking at. What
1: made you decide to come out and hang with Ken and visit the whales?
0: Well, you're a surprising one to ask that question. You should know very well. They're uh, absolutely (laughs) fantastic, fascinating, awesome, uh, and super, super interesting because they're incredibly intelligent. They do do amazing things, and they have culture. Can you – I know you've talked a little bit about this or written a little bit about this. Can you talk about some of the
1: things that stood out for you that orcas have done that seem impossible or – tough to explain because every single person I've ever interviewed who or studied orcas has an imp- at least one impossible story. I've got a handful. Alexander Morton has a ton. Ken has a ton.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, some of them are, are Ken's and Alexandra's stories about um, trying to follow whales in a fog and losing them. And then suddenly the whales come back to them and lead them to their house. They both have that story and in Alexandra's case, the whales had never been in front of her house before, because she lives up a side channel there. Um, it's as if they understand quite a few things about people that they know, and, and, and these things are really mind-boggling. Um, the stories I told earlier about whales splitting up to avoid capture, dolphins communicating things, there's a, a dolphin researcher, Denise Herzing, she studies spotted dolphins in the Caribbean, And she knows all those individuals also, and they know her and her boat and they always come over when she arrives, you know, they'll spot them and then the dolphins will come to the boat and they'll be jumping around and bow riding and stuff like that. And one day they wouldn't come near the boat. And she was saying to the captain, what is wrong with the dolphins today? They're acting so weird. And suddenly somebody came up from below. And uh, and told them that someone had died in their bunk during a nap. So h- how would the dolphins know that one of the human hearts had stopped, and why would they care, and why would it spook them? The you know these are some of the really really weird stories, um, and then there are others that are um, a little less weird. Um, more playful kinds of things. Ken Balcom was um, sitting with a, a, a very young you know, baby uh, a killer whale, baby orca that had been separated from its pod, eventually was reunited, but before they could get the people and the equipment that they needed to bring that uh, that baby whale back, Ken was sitting there and there, a branch floated by, he picked up the branch and threw it, and the whale went and got it and brought it back to him. And then on a whim, he just made a rotating, sign with his hand like roll over and it just started rolling over now if you try that with a dog that has never been trained to roll over it would just look at you we have no idea what you were doing and somehow that that baby whale intuited what he was doing and felt like doing it that's uh that's a level of communication and uh and sympathy that is surprising and yet it does exist there it's not new It's, you know, it's their capacity. They've had that capacity for a few million years. We just don't know about it. So we find it, uh, you know, we find it really shocking. Bob Pittman was walking along a crack in the ice in Antarctica where there were some uh, orcas swimming and he just decided to take a chunk of ice and throw it near one of them. And the whale immediately picked up another chunk of ice and slung it back to him. Uh, very, very aware of what he was doing, and uh, either in a playful mood or just saying, "You know, I saw that. I don't really appreciate it," or, or maybe just saying, "Hey, I'll play this game."
1: Cool. Do you have any thoughts on the impact of Tahlequah?
0: The impact. Um, the impact of Tahlequah and her tour of grief. Well, it it touched and moved a lot of people. I I don't I don't see that it has moved the needle yet anyway, on what we would need to do to reopen room in the world for those whales that are uh, in such dire shape that 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 whole group appears to be doomed at you know the current trend or we need to let them turn that trend around. we don't seem to be changing much but an awful awful lot of people got the message that, um, that whale was doing something at the very least, very devoted to the idea of keeping her baby alive. Um, more likely understanding that the baby was not alive and being unwilling to let it go in her her kind of grief. And I, I, I really, I was taken with the language in the New York times, which printed one of maybe only two um, essentially obituaries for non-humans that i that i'm aware that they ever printed um, where it said that um, it, it, it seemed like more than a tour of grief it, it seemed like an accusation and um, you know i took that to heart i think it's a it's a very apt accusation because it's it's because of humans that those babies are not surviving
1: Yeah, Ken talked a lot about Tahlequah sending us a message.
0: Yeah, well, there's a, a, you know, the question is they are, you know, can we understand what they're communicating to us? Are we smart enough to get it?
1: Do you have any thoughts on personhood as a way to protect species, orcas or other species?
0: Well, um, yes, I do. And I would say that personhood is irrelevant to protecting the ability of other species to exist in the world for the following reason. Personhood is a a legal concept that has to do only with ownership. That's one of the reasons that people object to the idea of personhood for nonhumans is that they don't understand what's being discussed. They think it means that, you know, we're going to recognize a chimpanzee as a human being because humans are persons. And they say, well, a chimpanzee is not a not a human. So why would we say it's a person? And we have a big problem because if we treat it like a person, what would we do? Open the cages and let chimpanzees loose on the sidewalk? Well, that wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for them at all. They would die. It wouldn't work for us. What is the point of this? Well, I, I will tell you what the point is. And I think personhood is a very unfortunate concept because it communicates so badly because the word has so much baggage. But in law, the only living thing that cannot legally be owned in the United States. And in most of the world now, is a human being. And they can't be owned because they are legal persons. So, just the idea of extending personhood to something like a chimpanzee is to say, you can't own this chimpanzee. And we want to come forward and act in its behalf. In the way that you would act in the behalf of uh, a human being who, for some reason, can't stick up for their own interests, maybe they're um, disabled, mentally retarded, uh, they have dementia, or something like that. Um, they may need caretakers, but but that kind of care and representation is based on the fact that no one can own them. So. If you can't own an orca, that means you can't have orcas in captivity, which would be very good for orcas, but it has no implication for the wild orcas. It doesn't mean, if you, if you said they're persons, they cannot be owned, that you could treat them as badly as we treat other persons by denying them what they need to live and thrive. It doesn't mean that you're gonna make sure that they have enough to eat or that their water will be clean. We don't even do that for people. There are loads of people, including in the United States, who don't have good food, don't have safe water, don't live in clean communities where they're not getting sick because of pollution and toxic chemicals. We, even for human beings, personhood is not a ticket out of a miserable existence. And for wild species, it really becomes irrelevant because legally, the only thing it implies is you can't own them. So we need a much better concept about their right to exist and thrive. That the, the closest we come is that in the United States, we have the Endangered Species Act, which basically says that every species has the um, the legal right not to be driven extinct. And, and we will take measures to make sure. The law requires taking measures to make sure that they don't go extinct. But the main problem with the Endangered Species Act, other than that, a lot of people find it too inconvenient, the main legal problem with the with the uh, you know the structure of that law is that it sets a floor, and the floor is zero. Anything above zero is basically okay. And that is a guarantee that you will be losing species. Um, The Clean Water Act, for instance, sets an aspirational goal. It says that all waters of the United States must be swimmable and fishable. It doesn't say um, as long as you don't get burned by acid by dipping your foot in the water, or as long as you don't die, when you go swimming or you know or 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 get sick after you go swimming it's okay it doesn't say that it it says swimmable and fishable it ha- it aspires to health and vitality the endangered species act does not aspire to health and vitality it aspires basically to the bare minimum that a species can continue to bump along and still exist
1: how did animals become your thing how did how did this become your world
0: Um, I don't know. I always have loved animals. That's, uh, that's the quickest, easiest, truest answer I can give you. I had, I had some very good experiences with animals early on in my childhood and that kind of thing. Um, but I think a lot of, a lot of children do, and not everybody decides that they want to be involved with them for the rest of their life, you know, professionally. And, uh, and every day. But for some reason, um, I did, I, I, I desperately did. And um, uh, luckily and much to my amazement, um, it managed to happen.
1: Was there a book or a movie or anything that ever inspired you?
0: Uh, yeah. Um, but I think the basis of what inspired me was just seeing animals. My father's hobby was breeding canaries. I raised pigeons from the time I was seven years old. We went to the zoo. We went to the aquarium. We went to the Museum of Natural History in New York City, where, you know, all the animals are dead and stuffed. But in those dioramas that made me, as a city kid, glimpse what the the habitats of the world were like, and the animals of the world were like, and I just found them to be literally totally amazing. Um, and, you know, and I had some other experiences with animals at the zoo who were interactive and responsive to me, and uh, and, and animals that I had my pigeons, pet rabbits, and things like that. Uh, There used to be a show on television with people tagging animals. But, there, well, now there's a lot of things like that. But at the time when I was a kid, there was one show like that. I watched it every Sunday night. Uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Many people remember that. Always with a smoke. Oh, totally remember that. I used to watch going, he's sending Stan out to die again. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wanted to be like those guys. And I, I was uh, pretty desperately sure that I would never be able to be anything like those guys because I didn't I didn't know how anybody got into anything like that. And I didn't know anybody who did anything remotely close to it. And then in high school, somebody I knew in high school somehow found out about a guy who banded birds. And that was the first little brush I had with doing anything like Research on wild animals, and I, you know, and I sort of took it from there with a lot of blund, a lot of blundering, and a lot of accidental luck.
1: Can you talk about the Safina Center and what you're up to with that and how that happened?
0: Well, that's my little not-for-profit group that is um, dedicated to what we call uh, advancing the case for life on Earth. We we're a bunch of people who are. Science oriented people, but um, everything we do is done creatively so we're trying not to just inform people, but to affect people's emotions and let them understand things that you know what is at stake in these things that we care about and that we're working toward.
1: Sounds like you have animals in the background that are trying to visit you right now.
0: Yeah, well in the room right now there are three dogs and our rescued monk parakeet here.
1: Oh wow. There was a beautiful, there's a beautiful quote that you've got on the webpage for the Safina Center. Facts alone can't save the world. Hearts can, hearts must. We're working to make sure that hearts do. Can you please talk just a little bit about the philosophy behind that? Because I'm so with you on that.
0: Well, I think, you know, we see more and more that there's a lot of information out there and people are um very able to ignore information and they act on emotions so with we need to find a way for our information to affect people emotionally and for them to care about what is at stake you can you can tell people a fact like elephants may go extinct and one person will say that's terrible we have to make sure that never happens and another person could respond to the exact same fact by saying, so what? I don't, I don't rely on elephants for any part of my life. Elephants don't live in the whole Western Hemisphere. It's clear that people don't need elephants. It's, it's, it, you, it's your, you know, you, you filter information through your values and your values determine how you are going to react to that information.
1: And I should ask you, since I started this off by mentioning Lori Marino, can you talk about your involvement with the sanctuary project?
0: Oh well, Lori asked me if I would be on the board of the sanctuary, the Whale Sanctuary Project, which is trying to find a place for the basically the retirement of cetaceans that have been in captivity, usually in in captivity, in, in some. Sort of entertainment or quasi-entertainment capacity, either um, a marine park like SeaWorld or something like that, and um, or uh, y- you know an aquarium or aquariums in different places. So we've been trying to find um, a site. It, it will never solve the problem overall, but it may provide some capacity for a few individuals. We we have currently located a site that does look viable and working on that, which is a, a huge process because to you know basically find a bay that you can uh, essentially net off a big part of a bay and have that okay with local people and um, and and the local government. That's that's turns out to be a very very tall order, and then figuring out how to fund that um, you know, these, these are expensive beings, they eat fish and, uh, other things that cost a lot of money and they live a long time. And what would you like
1: people to be doing right now? If you could send a message out to the planet going here, get your act together. What would you ask people to do?
0: Um, uh, well, caring would be a really, a really good start and caring actively. You uh, you know, unfortunately we, we have a, a rather ponderous and unpleasant system where we put people in charge of making policies. Usually those people are put in charge by people that are elected by people. And you have to take part in the election process. And then that's just a tiny little first step. But if you really wanna be somebody and have some influence. You have to let your voice and yourself be known, you know, repeatedly. And um, it's it's not a sexy or a fun thing to do to write letters or make phone calls or join activist groups and conservation groups and and work toward all of these things. But. Um, you know, the first step is to care, but then you have to translate some caring into some action. And everybody should, you know, everybody who cares should do something. You can't, you can't do everything. You you can't save the world. You can't solve all the problems, but everybody can do something. And that's what they should figure out. What, what they want to do, you know, figure, figure out what, what suits you, what seems amenable to your personality or your budget or whatever it is but um everybody can do something
1: perfect thank you so much for doing this
0: you're extremely welcome i, I am very honored uh, that you wanted to have me join you today so thanks so much excellent and thanks for all that you do you too
1: Thanks again for listening. Scanny is produced in Saanich, B.C., traditional territories of both Saanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like this podcast and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Ira Glass, and this was This American Life. I'd like to thank all of our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Darren Laren young Solomon Siegel, The Green Channel, where you can check out my movie, The Green Chain, and Yosef Wask. Feel free to join this list at patreon.com backslash You can also support us at Scanna.org with one-time donations there through Kofi.com. ficom is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Salish Sea and Big Whale's Small World, both of which were selected by the Canadian Children's Book Centre for their list of 2020's Best Books for Kids and Teens, and Orcas Everywhere, winner of the City of Victoria's Children's Book Prize. Also, for grown-ups, check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in print or audio or ebook. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like world-renowned primatologist and author Franz De Wall, Julia Barnes, the amazing young director of Sea of Life and the upcoming documentary Bright Green Lies, and you'll want to join us for a behind-the-scenes look at the upcoming Royal BC Museum exhibit, Orcas, Our Shared Future. Be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and our Scana magazine on Medium. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Share the show with your cats. You may be able to hear my cat in the background right now. That's Freya. She always has a lot to say. Heck, Share it with strangers too. Share it with their cats. And reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. Scan is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu. Our epic associate producer and audio engineer is Isabella Almashi. Thanks to web wizard Katie Brown, social media maven Liz Flick Bellis, and our behind the scenes team, including Maeve Milligan and Brian Murphy. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Since Carl Safina's Becoming Wild How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace is about whales, chimps, and macaws, we thought we'd end off this episode with a song by Ontario's Danny Michelle, Feather, Fur, and Fin.
2: The country to escape the noise and lights. I laid there in the pine cones all night. I woke in the morning and all the trees were gone. I got this sinking feeling, everything felt wrong. There were strip malls and dollar stores and diesel in the air. So I slept in a rowboat. trees were gone.